Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Um, we've got a very serious topic today, uh, which is the economic impact of war on real estate. Uh, I'm joined by the writer of the Sunday Supplement column, uh, Adam Lawrence. Great to have you on, Adam. Thanks for having me again, Will. Now, um, Adam, we, we might get you to do a, a little bit more detailed introduction on yourself, but Adam's a prolific real estate investor uh, of, of over a decade at this stage. Uh, he's a Oxford graduate. Uh, he also uh, is the, um, the the top student, in, or, or sorry, at least the uh, the top MBA student to come out of Coventry in his year. Um, he is a real estate entrepreneur extraordinaire would be a, um, a simple way of putting it. He's involved in a number of um, UK property businesses, uh, including being the founder of Partners in Property. Um, so you can look him up on LinkedIn. Uh, so it's Adam Lawrence uh, on LinkedIn. But Adam, you, you might just, um, before we get into the, the um, discussion of the, the, the topic at hand, just add, add a little bit more to that, please. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll just correct one thing slightly. I went to Warwick Business School, although you're technically correct because Warwick Business School is in Coventry, so that's fair enough. Um, but the only things I'd probably add to that is, you know, the the the, the bulk of what I've done has been in a relatively strange, relatively flat, somewhat stilted, and false growth cycle um, in the embers of the financial crisis, really which was a, a, an issue that at the time was thought to have, you know, decades or decades plus to sort of play its way through the system. So we've obviously lived through, um, or the UK property market has been through a few um, once in a lifetime shocks, really. Brexit referendum would be one of them. Pandemic would be another one. And now war, well, not exactly on our doorstep, but then it wasn't really on our doorstep when Germany invaded Poland. Um, so it does start people thinking, getting concerned, being being worried, and then understanding, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic itself has a long shadow. Um, and pandemics and wars historically have often been talked about together in terms of economic analysis. Uh, the thought of having those two things quite so close together um, it's quite rare. Obviously, the end of the First World War, 1918, was also the birth of the Spanish flu. So the uh, 100, 100 years ago could could indeed be repeating itself, uh, as we've as we've said a few times over the last few years, Will. Um, but primarily, I've been involved in buying to hold and creating a robust portfolio that can survive a bit of a cockroach real estate portfolio, really, that can survive all the pressures that are put in on it um, by all sorts of external things happening in the economy that are beyond our control. And obviously there are implications for inflation. When wars involved, there are implications for interest rates. There are implications and that those things are already <clears throat> in a relatively interesting place at the moment. So it's not necessarily the, the seismic difference from today. It's putting pressure on something there's already pressure on realistically. All right. So... Um, we'll get, get cracking. So uh, the economic of impact of war on real estate. Um, and for those of you who are listening to this um, at some point in the future, that this is during the week that 
uh, that Russia uh, invaded the Ukraine. Thanks, Will. So, older men declare war, but it is youth that must fight and die. Herbert Hoover said that. The so events who, who, who was Herbert Hoover for, for the benefit of listeners? Uh, American president in the, I believe, uh, 20s. Um, interesting choice, deliberate choice of quite, I didn't go into this actually, but deliberate choice because thought of uh, quite considerably uh, as a personality, some, some personality traits equivalent to Putin, um, because Putin, whilst most people don't necessarily know a lot about him, um, quite introverted, quite quiet, extremely focused, extremely determined, um, quite a dangerous mix of personality types, but not necessarily uncommon in a leader, um, but possibly uncommon in today's world, which probably speaks a fair bit as to why we are where we're at today to an extent. Um, so the events of this week means that the supplement's taken a bit of a pivot. Uh, from a macro perspective, what does the invasion of Ukraine mean and where are the geopolitics likely to go? From a micro perspective, what does this mean for the UK, who are geographically relatively isolated, but have meaningful ties on a number of levels with both Ukraine and Russia? There's also an interesting observation that I wanted to make that I've seen more strongly reflected over all the recent news stories, um, part of the COVID shadow, which I think will last for many years. In last week's news, which is long forgotten now, apart from those of us who've been mending fences all week, and I mean that physically, not metaphorically, the Met Office had issued two red weather warnings on the same day. <clears throat> this is a rare event, and the obvious parallels around climate change don't even seem to be mentioned anymore, uh, primarily because of its place at the top of the political agenda. The warnings ended up being justified with four sadly losing their lives, but I heard more than one call into talk radio questioning the authority, accuracy, and indeed the motives of the Met Office. Uh, this isn't worth significant airtime as a theory, in my view, but it is an observation that some are feeling, firstly, distrust everything that comes from a government organisation is the way forward, and also are motivated enough by that feeling to call up a national radio show and share the latest storm conspiracy and their piece on why the Met Office might want to do this. That's where we've got to, and the government has to shoulder a significant amount of the blame for that due to the communications and behavioural strategies employed during the pandemic phase of COVID-19. Like almost everything, this is likely to be a continuous feeling on a scale. There are a few at the far end of this spectrum, but many, many more are likely to be feeling at least some of this distrust. Further observation, and some of this is very valid in the post-Brexit world, and I have limited memory of it before the 2016 referendum, is the confluence of the far right and the far left around the Russia-Ukraine situation. This isn't the first time, recently seen in anti-lockdown protests before they became particularly large in number, that people from the opposite ends of the political spectrum have been shoulder to shoulder. For those fortunate enough not to have looked into it yet, basically on one side, it's all our fault. And when I say our, I mean the West, the UK, depending on how you position it. It's all our fault because we weren't friendly enough to Russia and Clinton should have let them join NATO in the 90s. On the other side, it's the abject weakness of the West that is allowing Russia to pursue its long-term goal to restore the USSR, or perhaps more accurately, the Russian Empire, if you dissect Putin's 90-minute monologue on the matter before they invaded Ukraine. There are definitely some points that are worthy of consideration without signing up to the extremes of either ideology. It seems fair to conclude that Russia doesn't want a democracy on its border, and Ukraine was the most likely of the former republics to be invaded. It also seems from a strategic perspective that Russia would see advantages in occupying Ukraine. 40% of the world's grain comes from Ukraine. Then there are significant natural gas reserves to consider, of course. There are also broad borders and a further move west that are offered by the geographical positioning. The Russian army is currently moving faster than the already named allies. But let us stick with NATO as the primary defence force. 
The Ukrainian forces are putting up a robust defence, but are in very difficult place from a sheer weight of numbers perspective. Friday saw Ukraine outperform based on Russian expectations, who may have been too bullish here. But one of many questions that arises is how does a Putin-style character retreat from this situation? There has been a large commitment here and reverberations are likely for decades to come. One remaining pin to fall on the sanction side is the removal of Russia from the SWIFT system, which actually overnight has been actioned. Um, and of course, this reduces their ability to move money. And we are talking about trillions uh, that move through the SWIFT system on a daily basis, so significant money. Of course, anyone doing business with Russia will be hurt by this. And there are some direct issues causing, of course, some hesitation on this front. There is a need and indeed an irony, given that the UK system still remains the most active in terms of tax avoidance on the planet, with its own network of various crown dependencies and offshore havens, which has inevitable money laundering consequences. To squeeze Russia, and indeed Putin from a personal perspective, and Sergei Lavrov, as Russia's foreign minister, uh, widely thought of as Putin's uh, second in command slash lapdog, and certainly very helpful in holding assets. Um, this is underway and is thought of as the only way to make a meaningful difference to Putin. His own estimated fortune of hundreds of billions, depending on what you read and how much you believe, of course, provides a significant target if it can be located. <clears throat> it's also the case you'd expect him to have made meaningful preparations for these assets to be frozen before the incursion into Ukraine. And of course, there are further consequences. So India see this as an opportunity to potentially welcome Russia via their own payment system. And very little has been in the Western media of the role of China in this whole conflict. A China who no doubt looks on and wonders whether it is a good time to bring Taiwan back under its mighty wings. War news is pushed to the back of the Chinese media broadcast with Putin's narrative given a, a higher billing and it seems clear to commentators that Russia will enjoy China's support throughout here. This looks problematic for the USA and the West in general. Russia are not a particular threat on their own, but if my enemy's enemy is indeed my friend, Russia and China together are a force that will not be challenged by the current administrations. There are also many national considerations that are slowing down the EU response, which again is something that we saw throughout the pandemic. Um, Germany gets half of its coal, natural gas from Russia, and also a third of its oil. These amounts are not replaceable in short order. Then there is the impact on pricing in general. Oil prices are volatile, of course, and there has been a roughly 10% gain in February so far. A 10% gain in February. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, prices have fallen back from, I think Brent crude touched $105 um, uh, on, late on Thursday, uh, but it's fallen back to about 96 already. So that's, it's come back, from, it's been about, it was about 89 at the start of Feb. So uh, very volatile. And another 10% here or there would not be uh, out of, outside of thinking, even in one day, um, because there are so many things going on. There's also, it may accelerate the Iran situation which in in theory has not been selling any oil due to sanctions um that it's not actually clear whether they have or have not been selling oil on the black market to china and there are, there are obviously many implications beyond that but one of the uh the favorite topics of any of the oil traders or people who know lots about oil is how bad the real numbers are in terms of their accuracy because there have been various statements over the years from all sorts of players, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, of how much oil they've got and then how much oil people think they've actually got um, and how much oil they know whether they've got. And of course, natural gas, similar statements in natural gas in the North Sea, um, for example, as well. So it's not it's not limited to oil, but there's uh, there is a difficulty. And that's why there's so much volatility, because the transparency of the actual amount of the resource that is available um, is one problem then getting it out of the ground is, is, is another problem. Then getting it to where you want to get it to, uh, bearing in mind geopolitics, is, is another problem. So this is why there's so much, so much movement. 
and really so much opinion in that market rather than uh, rather than uh, fundamental trading to an extent. And that's why it's so difficult unless you're a very talented trader. Um, so, you know, there, there's resist- there seems to be resistance at the $100 level, although generally speaking, uh, it's been thought for quite some time that the $100 level will be breached this year. Um, it's often quoted that I think in 2008 we hit uh, $147, and you'll understand why that's a, a year that makes people nervous. Well, um, oh. but due to the amount of inflation we've had since then, $2,847 is equivalent to 2022's $220. So we're a long, long, long way away from where we were in the last uh, crisis or the last oil crisis, I suppose. Obviously, the pandemic sent the price of oil through the floor because people weren't, you know, planes weren't flying, people weren't traveling, etc. etc. Um, so the thing is, this is inflationary stuff, and inflation has been very high up in the headlines, both in the US, where it's moved to the sort of seven and a half percent region, the UK official figure 5.4, but even before the, the, the conflict broke out, the Bank of England were forecasting 7.25 later this year. Um, people like me were saying that I think it's going to be a little bit higher than that. This is going to add further pressure on the upside. Um, so it, it's also the case that we were feeling the pinch a bit more on the energy side of things than the US were. Um, some of that is just due to our where we import our gas and oil from, apart from anything else. Uh, whereas the US, are, of course, have produced quite a lot more via shale and are, uh, are actually net exporters or have been net exporters of oil. Doesn't mean that the global situation doesn't affect them, of course. And they've got their own issues. I won't go into them in detail, but uh, one of the important reserves of oil in the US, Cushing, Oklahoma, um, has not, again, it's one of those where they don't actually know how many barrels are in there. It's a bit like Fort Knox um, and knowing how much gold was actually in there when they still adhered to the gold standard. There's a, a fair amount of speculation. And if one of these places runs dry, it's, uh, if you think it's been volatile so far, then it's a real, it's a, a real opportunity for some big volatility. So, um, so this, of course, affects energy prices. And this is a shock on top of a shock. As I've said, there was a huge spike upwards in the latter part of this week, although prices tempered a little bit on Friday. So I'll just go into that in a little bit of detail as well. Uh, Friday, what we saw was a fairly classic war crunch situation. So there's really two ways to interpret Friday's markets. There was a massive gain where there'd been losses in stock. What we saw was very, very typical at the start of a conflict, the people who were geographically nearer to it, their market suffered the most. So I think the Russian market was down about 33% before Friday. And then people on the borders of Ukraine or Poland, for example, their market was hurt a bit more. Germany, their market was hurt a little bit more. The UK market was hurt a little bit less. And then the US, the market was not overly concerned because there's obviously a a big blue ocean, apart from anything else, between uh, between the Ukraine and uh, and the US. So <clears throat> Friday saw most of those losses erased, um, and it, as I said, there's really two ways to interpret that. One, Russia were underperforming, as I've already said, in terms of their objectives for the war. I don't know if they really think it was going to be easy to march into Ukraine, but obviously Ukraine declared martial law said that no men between the ages of 18 and 65 could leave the country, um, encouraged citizens to take up arms, published how to make a Molotov cocktail on the uh, interior uh, website, the, the Ministry of the Interior. So encouraging their citizens to stand up and fight, which, of course, they're going to do. Um, so, so that might have tempered concerns a little bit. But also there's that, that horrible memory that actually war raises GDP, generally speaking. And this is one of the reasons where GDP is a flawed economic measure. Or or maybe it isn't really, because it provides a further reason, and you could use the word excuse if you prefer, I'll stick with reason, provides a reason for countries to borrow more money, to reinvest 
in infrastructure that gets destroyed to find new trade routes, to find ways around what's a very strategically positioned country. Um, so also tends to happen is there's a, a increased spending on uh, research and technology, and and what happens is um, when you do that, um, particularly if a, if the war drags out into a a longer period, or there's a, a further, uh, I suppose, rearming or, or, or shoring up of defences, that, that money flowing into technology and research uh, creates breakthroughs that, that otherwise may not have happened for a number of uh, decades otherwise. Yeah, there's no, there's no surprise that the shares in BAE systems have gone up rather a lot since, uh, since the conflict started. Um, in anger, absolutely. So, um, so then there are parallels there with the early days of the pandemic, um, in terms of borrowing. Uh, and this is where, as I said, wars and pandemics are often analysed together to tend to have different outcomes. Um, but I mentioned this in the early days, right? Right. If we go right back to March 2020, uh, you've got an issue on top of an issue, and that's where it really starts to cause problems. No one tends to see recessions coming. Well, they might see them coming, but they don't see the trigger reason for the recession necessarily. And this could be one of those, one of those situations, really. Um, there was some understandably hurried out, re hurried, rushed out research that was released on Friday around uh, energy bills for the UK household, which I think we were, we were an average of about 1,300 quid um, before October last year, um, when the price cap went up for the first time. Uh, we're now around about 2,000, but there's some new research that's suggesting we could be moving to more like 3,000 after October's price rise. Now, that could be based on, project, as I said, projected oil and gas prices that are, um, you know, already quite high and quite volatile, and that may or may not be priced in. But it won't do much. This conflict will not put the price of oil down, it won't put the price of natural gas down. Uh, there's, there's just too much of that going on. So you're talking about 130% in just over a year on the average um, UK household energy bill, which of course is not just inflationary for you and I and everybody who has to pay their electricity and gas bills, but it's also, you know, energy prices impact everything that's produced in real terms, in terms of goods, in terms of services, they obviously have an impact, but less so. But in terms of goods, they have a significant impact. Um, so electricity in factories, for example, all the way through to logistics and getting goods from A to B. Um, so inflation expectations naturally get pushed upwards yet further. It's a matter of basis points. It's not several percent more fuel to the fire, but it's still significant. When, when you're at the, the boundaries of where anybody is comfortable with being, and you push another 30 points, 50 points beyond that, it's obviously much more damaging than moving from 2% to 2.3%, for example, um, because you, you, can, you can handle that slack apart from anything else as a central bank. Um, so we need, we need, we're, gonna need more, we're gonna need some more data. Um, we'll see what the longer, term, uh, the longer term impact of this is but it does increase the probability of interest rates being pushed up yet further by central banks who don't really want to go down that route because of the fragility of the underlying economy and because of all the extra debt that's been taken on thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I, I'd describe this as, as really, really significant. It's the first time I keep an, one of the things, one of the, one of the many hundreds of things that I keep an eye on is the five-year, five-year break-even, which in plain English is the difference between uh, government-issued inflation-linked bonds and government-issued bonds in nominal terms. So that will give you that, that gap between those two prices of those two bonds will basically tell you what the market expects inflation to be in five years' time. And that has actually crossed 5% in the last uh, couple of days. I need some more data on that. The next few days will be interesting, but this is a, a number that has been, for the, for the uh, last year or so, I've been checking in on it regularly, 
and it's been sort of three and three, three and a half percent, three and three quarter percent, which felt like maybe about right, perhaps a little bit low. Now it's breached five. You're talking about significant tail to inflation expectations. Um, and, you know, some of the writing on the Just in terms of uh, the length of the conflict, uh, which is unknown uh, as of today. Uh, and I suppose there's uh, there's two two phases, and um, I maybe it's unfair to assume that that Russia will uh, will in fact uh, win the initial phase if there is such a thing, um, and then how long it takes to do that, and then how long the um, the that the, the post uh, that the post-war hostilities continue between NATO and and Russia. How long yeah. that goes on, and uh, what was the importance of that? Well, I mean, you know, it certainly underscored the importance of NATO, and something that's been uh, criticised really over the last, certainly in Trump's presidential term, took a lot of criticism. Um, one of the reasons being that the, the member countries or a number of the member countries were not committed, were not actually <clears throat> following through on their commitment to spend 2% of their GDP on defence. Um, and Trump, you know, as someone who was not keen on uh, funding massive military conflicts, and actually, I think at a really simple level, understood that the trillions of dollars that were spent in somewhere like Afghanistan, for example, were a pretty bad move. But then... You could also apply those arguments to things like the war on drugs, for example, but that we, we, we digress quite easily. Um, so I think, you know, the first phase is obviously taking longer than Russia had expected. There's a there's kind of a consensus in the thinking in the West that Putin's surrounded by yes men and people who are just going to tell him what he wants to hear. Um, I don't know about the, the veracity of that, obviously, to, to be honest. Um, I would have thought, you know, this is quite old school military strategy, isn't it? You know, what do you do? Your boots on the ground, you take control of strategic locations, airports, ports, utilities, and then you're, you're also going after um, cities which are more uh, symbolic, I suppose, than anything. I know that Russia had captured, or there was reports that they captured one of the, one of the smaller ports in the Ukraine um, yesterday. Uh, but then there's also been reports of them capturing the airport, which then the Ukrainian forces took back um, relatively quickly on Friday. So it's obviously a very fast-moving situation. Um, I'm not sure the, the weight of numbers, what was being reported. And of course, you know, there's propaganda. Of course, there's propaganda in Russia, but it would be foolish to think there's not propaganda in the West as well. So all the, the scores on the doors, if you like, on Friday were certainly around... Uh, Russia had lost more people. Um, Russia had lost more in terms of uh, forces, in terms of weaponry, in terms of all of those things. Um, not sure about that. There are, as I said, there's there's concerns over what China might be able to help with. There's concerns over where Afghanistan play a part in this. So, of course, Russia attempted to occupy before the uh, US, Western, UK conflict in Afghanistan of 20 years hence. Um, where are Afghanistan, where are the Taliban at, as far as all this is concerned, who are holding, apparently have got more Blackhawks than the UK army because of what was left uh, in Afghanistan after the, the botched withdrawal um, from, from that nation. So there's a lot of complexity around where Russia are going to get their funding from. Peers like China are going to be relatively friendly. Obviously, the West are, are pumping money towards the Ukraine and arms, as you said, um, as well towards the Ukraine, and the Ukraine have given the, the strongest response they can and said, look, we're going to stay and fight. And, and it appears that people are quite willing to stay and fight um, from the news that's coming out. I doubt every man between 18 and 65 is particularly happy about that, um, but that's where, that's, where they're, that's where they're at at the moment. So like, like I said earlier on, I, it doesn't leave a lot of flex for, I mean, obviously they, they have talked about diplomacy, and they've said the uh, Ukrainian president is convinced that he's the number one target and they want to assassinate him 
and put their own regime in. So this is all part of Ukraine's democracy. Um, Russia is not a democracy. And Russia doesn't like the idea of that sort of westernized democracy on its on its doorstep, if you like. So although, of course, uh, if they if they had a, a puppet government, if you will, it's similar to Putin has had a number of former Soviet republics who've had leaders in there that are pretty much subordinate to him over the years. Indeed, in Ukraine, before the annexation of Crimea, that was pretty much also the case back in 2010. Um, they pretty much had a, a, a very Russian sympathetic, shall we say, um, leader installed. So it would be, you know, so far, I do look at this a little bit like there's not been any massive surprises in as much as he moved a couple of hundred thousand forces onto the border. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of intelligence from the West saying he's going in. It's definitely happening. A lot of speculation. Um, but then he went in uh, pretty, pretty, pretty simple. Uh, you know, came up with this 90 minute speech with excuses and fantasy, really, by, by all accounts, in terms of breakaway regions, separatist regions in Donetsk and things like this. Um, and so to an extent, it, he's done so far what it looked like he was going to do. And I refer back to what I said earlier on. I don't understand how Putin in this situation walks away from it. Um, diplomatically, we'll have to see. Uh, and apparently they are going to meet um, next week, um, Zelensky and Putin um, in, I think, maybe in Georgia or, or somewhere else. Um, although Zelensky is convinced that he's a very much a target to be assassinated. So obviously that's a, a significant concern. Um, what the diplomatic solution looks like, probably what could Russia leave with a promise that Ukraine will never join NATO. Um, Ukraine could potentially offer that up and uh, appear relatively subordinate in that in that way. Um, I don't know if they've been willing to do that, especially on the basis on which that solution has been reached. So at the moment, we, we need to see more how the next few days play out and whether the just the sheer weight of numbers on the Russian side is enough to topple Kiev, for example. If Kiev is, is fallen, then uh, that's obviously... And the, and the other, um, the, the occupation um, element. So if 200,000 people are, are occupying a country of 40 million people, um, is that one person for, or, or 2,000 people for each soldier? Yeah, there's there's an interesting there's an interesting viewpoints around that really because it's also a big country. Um, it's not as hostile in its terrain as somewhere like Afghanistan, notorious for its uh, tunnels and and mountains and all the rest of it. Um, it is significant. There's significant amount of forest in the Ukraine, so it's a very flat country. So people have been saying, well, perhaps it's a lot easier to uh, to occupy, but Ultimately, I think they've shown the, the most robust response they can and it's not going to be easy to occupy. So another way of looking at your uh, one soldier per 2,000 people is one soldier per four square kilometres, I think it is, of, of land, which is obviously relatively significant. So, yes, big population. And without, at the moment, you haven't seen, you know, when you think of the numbers in somewhere like Syria, if you went back and looked at, the refugee exodus, for example. What we're hearing at the moment is there's around 100,000 refugees that are pouring into uh, border countries like Poland, like Romania, et cetera, et cetera, which is quite low on the basis of a population of 40 million. Um, you know, whereas in Syria, there were millions and millions very quickly, despite having a, a lower population in the Ukraine. So, um, <clears throat> It's not, it, it's certainly not looking like all out. And of course, I suppose if you're in, you know, the west of the Ukraine, you're not in clear and present danger as much as uh, if you're anywhere near the east or the northeast where, where Kiev is. So there's still time for things to play out to see exactly. And what, what, what's the significance of, of this uh, in terms of market expectations? 
Well, I mean, volatility, which we kind of touched on, is the, is the very first point of fact. And then I think as things calm down a bit, and people, so we saw on the Friday the markets sort of accept this, okay, there's a war. This probably means positive moves in the market for the reasons we've already discussed. Um, but of course, it also means it also means volatility. Um, so <clears throat> going back to sort of our inflation situation and the inflation situation around the world and the break-evens, which we were talking about, um, I, I've I've sort of had a a, a, a theory that three to four percent for a longer term in terms of inflation would actually suit the UK government down to the ground. Um, there needs to be this kind of veil of we're doing everything we can about it, but it's in but it's factors outside of our control controlling this inflation, which is true, which is absolutely true. Um, and so I spoke last week, which seems like a long long time ago now, about the Bank of England briefing um, and the bank being relatively comfortable with it may be taking two to three years for this inflation to play out. Now, if you take the break-evens on board, we're now looking at more than five years for it to play out. Um, and of course, the bank, although that will squeeze living standards, uh, it's not really within the bank's remit to to be overly concerned about people's living standards. They don't set fiscal policy. Ultimately, they set monetary policy. So <clears throat> I think a lot of these, a lot of the things that could play out end with a similar situation. Uh, we need to borrow some money. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's a reason for doing that, right? So of course, the primary issue is what we've already said. We've already borrowed quite a lot of money in recent years. And <clears throat> the global system held up because every country needed and wanted to borrow money um, in a really significant quantity. You know, we've added, you know, 20% plus to the national debt pile in the UK. Some countries are worse off than we are. Um, and if, if, if inflation, and now we need, this is where it's, it's there's, there's two things sort of butting heads really, because if inflation expectations do truly start to manifest in a meaningful way, and what I mean when I say that is, do people start to ramp up their consumption in the expectation of constantly rising prices? Because if you go back to the textbooks, right, that's what that's what they'll tell you. Now, there's something really working against this at the moment, and that's the shadow of the pandemic. So what did we see? We saw two interesting phenomenons when it came to people's uh, consumption or households' consumption, right? First of all, there were certain things they couldn't do. They couldn't go to the restaurant. They couldn't go to the pub. They couldn't go on holiday. They literally could not do those things. So there are substitutes to that. They could get a takeaway. They could, do, but ultimately, they were curtailed from spending as they would normally spend. They couldn't go and do normal leisure activities. They had to go into the back garden if they were lucky enough to have one. You know, um, so that was one one side of that. And then the other side of it is when you scare the hell out of people, then they will stop consuming and they will start saving there was a lot of unknowns and this is why household saving balances in 2020 went up so very much and i actually remember commenting last year and saying the chief economist of the bank of england at the time andy haldane was suggesting there were these hundreds of billions that were suddenly going to come back into the economy and force the economy forward and i remember commenting at the time saying i don't really believe that andy haldane believes that I think he's just saying that in order to bolster a bit of boosterism, one of Boris's favourite policies, you know, just talk it up and it will happen. And there's a, <clears throat> there's an element of truth in that. You know, if you certainly on the flip side, if you start talking about recessions a lot, then they can be self-fulfilling prophecies. There's no two ways about it. But my point is we're not out of, we're no, nowhere near out of the shadow of the pandemic yet in terms of how scared people were. And so the savings rate is not dropping as low as it could be, um, which is interesting because it leaves room for the amount of inflation that there is in the economy because people have got savings. So this is a, a pretty famous, um, since 1989 and the peak of the Japanese markets, and I, I know I refer to Japan on a semi-regular basis because there's such a long-term example of a society with very low interest rates apart from anything else that's quite interesting and there are a number of similarities between 
Japan and the UK, which make it a, a valid comparison. Um, and one of the things that's happened in Japan is that despite there being no incentive to save, is that people have still continued to save. And over the years, I've seen read many explanations for this, such as it's a cultural thing in Japan to save. I'm not sure there's as much evidence as you would like for it just being a cultural thing. I think perhaps there was a giant crash in a very developed economy in the stock market, a giant one, the likes of which we have not really dealt with, um, so big that it hasn't hit those heights since 1989 in terms of its nominal value. You know, you, we can't really conceptualise that in the UK or the US market because that's never happened over a period of 30 plus years. There have been periods post Great Depression, for example, it's been more like 20 years, but then also, you know, you chuck World War II into the middle of that as well. And it's a, it's a, a, complex, uh, a complex piece of history. And then you had obviously a very, very upward path of the markets in the 60s um, and the early 70s as well. So, um, you know, we can, we look at those situations, what can we learn? Does inflation this time around mean some of the damaging things for inflation? Will employers, you know, respond to wage demands moving upwards? It's not the greatest time in the world to move jobs necessarily. There's lots and lots and lots of jobs out there. Um, lots of companies haven't necessarily still really set on whether they're going to. Um... So here's the run. Uh, most of these roads end up with a similar situation. We need to borrow some money primary issue here is that everyone has done that in such significant quantity since 2020 and indeed before that i can hear you saying that if inflation expectations do truly start to manifest in a meaningful way and they haven't as yet i mean if people start to ramp up consumption in the expectation of constantly rising prices then this is when rates do meaningfully need to come up to cool down the economy and consumer spending why hasn't this been happening so far? After all, the writing has been on the wall around this inflation for at least a year now. Well, the pandemic has had a significant impact. The shadow on consumption behaviour left by COVID is not something that will pass quickly. I would liken it to a tree. Its roots are as wide as the tree is tall. Two years of uncertainty, behavioural manipulation and outright fear are likely to take as long to shake off. People don't just wake up one day and forget all about it. Visual cues, whether they be in shops, restaurants, or on public transport, will still be in many people's minds on a daily basis for months to come, even with the withdrawal of mandates in England. So we return to the current paradox. With rate rises not needed to cool consumption, and with inflation roaring due to cost push, issue, cost push, cost push issues and supply side issues, exacerbated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Bank of England does not want to raise rates. It has to, however, because it has to be seen to be doing the right thing. The danger of not raising rates while inflation expectations continue to go up is an issue for international credit ratings, aside from anything else. We also hear an immutable amount of slack in the forecast here. The bank's choice of language is inflation working its way through in two to three years. You can make your own mind up as to whether this is transitory, but we have seen above target inflation since September 2021 now. Two to three years from February 22 gives a near pass to inflation beyond the next election, Feb 25, at which point an extra six, 12, 18, or 24 months, no doubt, will be understood. So that would be five and a half years above target if that does happen. And there is a material probability of that absolutely being what plays out, in my view. So much for transitory. What do we do with the information, though? This is a strange situation. I set my mind back to 2011 when I decided to make a meaningful effort to build a property portfolio. Rates looked cheap. And indeed, inflation was raging again at the time, around 5%, although that was very temporary. The difference was that property also looked comparatively cheap. We need to go a bit deeper into this, however. Property was cheap in 2011 if you used your benchmark year as 2007. However, after inflation, i.e. real returns, as we call them, in the tens as a decade, were negative 
for more than half the households in the country. That is adjusted for inflation. Despite inflation not being particularly significant, apart from in early 2011 and then after the referendum, houses had actually got cheaper in real terms. Just, just say um, that again, please. So in, if you took, and I'm talking, remember, I'm talking about starting in 1st of January 2010. So there'd already been a correction in the market, right? 56% of the UK households were cheaper in real terms after adjusting for inflation, which many people go on about not being a fair reflection of just how much inflation there is. 56% of houses were cheaper in real terms. And that's a, that's a, a documented fact. Um, I've also, I've referred to it several times before, and I do consider it one of the most underreported facts in property. Um, of course, it doesn't make headlines because who buys the paper that says houses are more affordable in real terms, you know? Um, but then you need to consider, especially if you worked in the public sector in the 2010s, you also had a pay cut in real terms after inflation. So that does, of course, need to be factored in. Now, overall, that means the lowest standard of living. However, the continued deflationary impact of technology may not have made it feel quite like that. The other phenomenon that's often forgotten when doing this sort of analysis is that a person earning the average wage in 2010 is unlikely to be earning the average wage in 2020. So they're likely to progress through their career, maybe get promoted, maybe find more financially rewarding work, or they're likely to have retired or removed themselves from the labour force altogether. Either way, they don't conform to the average. The real comparable is between person A in 2010 and person B in 2020, who's the same age as the person was in the 2010 example. And this is, a, this is an impersonal thing. And so you don't necessarily feel this at the sharp end on a personal level. So it becomes a paper exercise quite quickly and it becomes a macro debate about inequality rather than individual inequality for you or I or anybody listening. So what was also different at the time? Well, rental growth had already happened because of demand that was stimulated by the great financial crisis. However, it had slowed and it moved between one and a half and 3% per year, according to the Office of National Statistics in the 2010s. The ONS currently measures rent growth at around 2%, although the 500,000 or so pieces of data that they have are primarily existing tenancies. Whereas growth in new rents is being measured by other indices at closer to 10%, you know, just above or just below, depending on which index you read. So what should you do about it? Well, in times of inflation, holding debt is a sensible strategy that should build wealth. Ideally, that debt will be at a fixed rate. And there is still a really unique situation here today with inflation at over 5% on the official figures and heading to 7 and higher. I'll be very surprised if we're not over eight in a few months' time, as I've said. And significant debt available at 3% or even lower if you own property in your personal name. There is an inevitable move upwards in the price of everything, including wages, despite the Bank of England telling people not to ask for a pay rise, which means that rents will keep moving upwards with debt payments on fixed mortgages moving sideways, and inflation will create a large nominal wealth effect. Does this therefore guarantee a continually rising market? No, it doesn't. It's an arbitrage situation to take advantage of, even if the property prices don't go up in real terms because inflation is so high for a period of time. The more that prices do move up in nominal terms, taking into account the cost of credit, but also moves upwards in wages, the more a bubble starts to inflate. So we would rather that in the long term this ebbs away but whilst it continues, it will remain difficult to buy, profitable and sensible to refinance, and a time to sweat assets and improve the existing to protect yourself from the dangers of significantly rising energy prices, amongst other things. While stock remains short, it may also be a good time to assess every asset, particularly as it becomes empty. <clears throat> Look at the situation. Finance. What you can actually realise if you sell the asset after tax and frictional costs, current rent and make a sensible decision. I could easily see a situation where selling in 2022 might yield a better price than selling in 2026, for example. And there's two reasons for that. 
selling in a market like this can get you 10% above even the current market value because of the shortage of stock. Um, and the other one is that when the seesaw does turn, it becomes much harder to sell at market value. So if you do need to sell in 2026, and I'm not I'm not picking on 2026 particularly as a that's the year where everything's going to go wrong or whatever, um, but there are obviously a number of economic problems and pressures at the moment that will need to be worked through uh, until we get to the next inevitable recession. Um, now, having said that, timing the market is hard and not recommended. The issue, or another issue that there will be, is what you do with that money if you do release it in the interim. Inflation beating investments are hard to find at the moment, and frictional costs of buying and selling might make holding the better strategy. It may well be, just as with previous pandemics, that all capital holders and investors feel some of the pain over the course of a number of years to come, perhaps even decades. At the moment, sometimes it feels like the answer is that there is no one answer. Now, this is just the nature of uncertainty and volatility, I'm afraid. We better get used to it for the moment, and the moment could easily be another two or three years. Be smart, don't overextend yourself. If you are buying, ensure to buy well. If you're selling, ensure also to sell well. Opportunities are out there as people reassess their life goals, apart from anything else which is a very natural thing to do after a pandemic. And also never forget that your reality is not the same as everybody else's. That's it for this week. All right, that's that's fantastic. Uh, Adam Lawrence, um, now, if anyone's interested in spending a bit more time with Adam, um, he runs a property retreat called The, the Retreat. Uh, it's every October. Um, if you want to get in contact with him via LinkedIn, uh, it, it's a, a eight-day or um, intensive, um, and I, I'd highly recommend it for anyone who has a an operating business that they're they're serious about building um, uh, over the, the the coming years. So uh, look it up. The retreat, Adam Lawrence on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Will Mallow. This is my Property World podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.